Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If you need someone to tell you here are the three reasons this is beautiful then or why this matters or why this is moving you or producing an emotional response, then I don't think it's really working. With which part? That, uh, that it's threatening or that I have no taste? That you have no taste. Okay, oh. okay, good. Just so we're clear. Just so we're clear. Why don't you go boil some food, British guy? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Another project I had looked at the aesthetics of actually solicitations from nonprofits asking for money. And that was interesting because in that context, high aesthetics could have both a good and a bad implication. Don't forget to download the one-page podcast summary, which highlights the key takeaways and the recommended actions just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. We hope it's of use. Well, Colin, we are lucky enough to have with us on the podcast today another one of my academic friends to talk about some of her research. Great. We have Claudia Townsend, who's an associate professor of marketing at the University of Miami at the Miami Herbert Business School. Wonderful. Nice to have you on board, Claudia. Welcome, Claudia. I am delighted to be doing this. Good. Well, we'll see if we can change your opinion on that by the end of the recording. (laughs) (laughs) Claudia does research on visual processing and aesthetics, visual design. The research that you do, Claudia, is what I assumed all marketing academics did for research before I started my PhD. Like I assumed that package design and visual design would kind of be one of the most important and most flourishing areas in research. And I was shocked when I went to PhD school that very few people are doing this, despite the fact that it's obviously very relevant and very important in in marketing and decision-making, but it's kind of not as deep and as broad a research area as I assumed it had been or it would have been, and that I think is maybe justified by its importance. So I guess I will start by just asking you, how did you get interested in this topic? Were there any experiences that led you here or what made you interested in it? Yeah. So, I mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head, which is when I too started PhD school, you learn the literature and you see what people are studying. And it seemed like, you know, the term we talk about in our field, low hanging fruit, which means research that's kind of easy to do. There's some areas in our field that I feel have been exhausted and there's so many fantastic findings. It's really hard to make a contribution. And then there's this area that to a practitioner, to a consumer is really important and obviously important, which is visuals and aesthetics But on the academic side, there was shockingly little in this area. And so when I started what you refer to as PhD school, which was in 2005 to age myself, Apple was at the height of its existence. And it was so clear to me that 
so much of its popularity was due to its design. And I saw it on two levels. One was it was just beautiful. The packaging was beautiful. I do this exercise in my class when I talk about aesthetics, where I ask students in the class, I say, raise your hand if you currently have in your possession the box that your iPhone came in and everyone raises their hand. Let me ask you to that. If you have an iPhone, do you own the box? Colin, go ahead. Yeah, I do. And I'm just glad, Claudia, that we're already talking about Apple because I drive Ryan round the bend by making sure that on every podcast that we do, we talk about Apple because I love them so much. I'm not convinced that you two didn't work this out ahead of time <laughs> before. That's the shtick of this show. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the shticks. You will learn all the shticks quickly. There are only a few and they're not that entertaining. I have an Apple box story, actually. So I, too, kept the, the box for my first iPhone and I used it jokingly as the doorstop of my office. And I had students gasp. They were outraged that I would degrade the packaging of the iPhone in such a disrespectful way. I thought it was funny, but um, not everybody did. If I write a book, that'll be my opening example. There you go. But yeah, it's a perfect example that the packaging is so beautiful that no one parts with it. So there's just this beauty of the Apple products. And then there's also the fact that I think they're really intelligent in their design. If you think about the first iPod or the first iPhone or even iPhones today, their design is so simple. An iPhone today has actually no buttons. It used to have one button. It has a couple on the side. But at the time, this was new technology. It was coming out. And, and technology is intimidating to people. So if you've never had a thousand thongs in your pocket and you see an MP3 player for the first time, it's daunting and scary, except you look at this simple design and how could this be complex? It's so beautiful and simple. So I was really kind of caught by that. And like I said, it seemed, as you said, what marketing should be studying or there seems to be such importance in this area. And yet there was little academic research. And it feels, I don't know if this is my bias coming out, but it feels like Apple were the first organization to really focus on the delivery of that packaging. And let me try and justify that. I know that obviously, you know, the way that, I don't know, the soap suds look or a bar of soap or the packaging that comes in, but you actually had people doing and still do have videos of people unpackaging and Apple products and other products now. But it feels like it was the they were one of the first people to really focus on the fact that the packaging was part of the brand and part of the experience, etc. Am I, am I right in saying that or not? I mean, certainly not on a global scale or outside of uh, across product categories. You might be correct that within technology, they were kind of the first to acknowledge that even in technology, aesthetics mattered and packaging mattered. But it's funny that you, of all people, should say this, because what, what people commonly say is that Europe was very much ahead of the curve in terms of recognizing aesthetics. And then there's this general idea that for a very long time, aesthetics was this additional attribute that if every other function in you was met, then a company consumer could focus on it. So it really was a luxury and only in luxury products that people both the company as well as the consumer were was looking at aesthetics. And then we got to this point where in our lifetime, you can get at a very low price point, very um, highly functioning products. You could go to your local convenience store today and get a functioning toaster for a low price. 
So given that, how do brands differentiate? So this idea that aesthetics is something that they're going to invest in and look at has become more universal and not just in the luxury market. Oh, that's interesting. So it's gone from kind of a nice to have to a must have attribute. Exactly. And that's really because functionality has become so standardized at such a high level that brands need to differentiate. But I think you're right that this idea that it's across categories and in things like electronics, that the packaging of an electronic device matters is not intuitive. So it's interesting that Apple chose to go that route. Even if you think about, for me, when I, one of the things that surprises me, if you unpack an Apple iPhone or whatever, just how tightly the lid fits. And again, it sort of tells me about like precision and all those other sort of subconscious messages, basically. Well, exactly. I mean, that's not aesthetics, but you're totally right that we as consumers read into these things and the precision and correctness of this lends us to feel very good about the product we just bought. Sure. It doesn't make us feel that this is a haphazardly put together item. So how would you define aesthetics then? So that's a great question. So you can define it on different levels. The way I like to talk about it is the way a product looks that is, well, there's two ways to do, I would look at it, but I tend to look at visual. Aesthetics can be, you can talk about the aesthetics of sound or the aesthetics of touch, but I focus on the visual in my research and I look at it holding functionality constant. So you're changing the way something looks without changing its functionality. And for that reason, I tend to focus on looking at products and categories where the way it looks doesn't necessarily influence the way it functions. So you could say something like a desk chair, the way it looks, it can look comfy. And that is the aesthetics and the functionality kind of coming together. So I tend not to study categories like that. I tend to study other categories where you can really separate functionality from aesthetics. The question I was going to ask was around the tactile, Mm, mm -hmm. the way it feels. So ever since I knew you were coming on the podcast, every time I've been picking up something or looking at something, I've been thinking, "Hmm, what am I thinking about this? So I guess you're saying you're not looking at the way that something feels, whether it's the cardboard box or... Yeah, so there is a whole line of literature that looks at that. That's not really what I do. And you could say that that does fall in aesthetics. I happen not to study that. Right. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of your research findings. You did this thing in one of your early papers that people love to do when studying irrational behavior, which is you looked at like the hyper-rational financial markets or financial disclosures to find evidence of your effect. So there's lots of research out there that's found like the effect of weather on trading behavior, right? So people who should be hyper-rational, let's, let's see if we can find irrationality there. And so you actually looked at the aesthetic design of financial disclosures, right? Was that right? Annual reports, exactly. Annual reports. Yeah, so it was exactly what you're talking about. So I saw this effect. We as consumers are very much aware of the effect of aesthetics in some categories. You buy, you buy clothing, maybe predominantly, at least partially based on the way it looks. Cars, we have some idea about the influence of aesthetics. And then we were talking about the beginning of irrationality or non-normative behavior or just unexpected behavior when you're talking about something like an Apple product and, and frankly, when you're talking about packaging. 
because presumably you're going to throw that out. But our thought was, let's push this to the extreme. And so we looked at annual reports. And so annual reports, even in industries where aesthetics shouldn't matter, you could argue that the aesthetics of an annual report for a company that does something related to aesthetics, an art house might make sense, but we're talking across the board. And we saw that aesthetics does in fact influence investor behavior. And we even looked at a sample of kind of more experienced investors. And even among those more experienced investors, we saw that it had an effect. And why? What are people inferring from aesthetics that's driving their behavior? Because so an annual report, I assume most of our listeners know, but this is financial disclosure data that investors use to essentially to decide whether or not to buy a stock in a company. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, it's meant to be a summary of past behaviors, past performance, expectations. So the numbers should matter. Right. Like the statements from the CEO and the leadership about where the company is going in the future, that should matter. The pretty colors on the cover should not. Right. So why do they? This in particular, we started to look at why it mattered. And so at the end of the day, a lot of the research we look at on consumer behavior is about people wanting to feel good about themselves. And owning good-looking products is a very quick and easy way to feel good about ourselves. So I have another project that I did around the same time that shows that just choosing good-looking products has this effect called self-affirmation, which is essentially kind of bolstering our sense of self and who we are and what we care about. So it really, it just makes us feel good to pick good-looking things. That's one thing we found. But also we tend to look at the aesthetics of a product and kind of make some assumptions about the rest of a company or an organization based on what we see. So another project I had looked at the aesthetics of actually solicitations from nonprofits asking for money. And that was interesting because in that context, high aesthetics could have both a good and a bad implication company. So it could say, and this is kind of universal and probably applies to the annual reports as well, but high aesthetics tends to suggest you're competent. You know what you're doing. You're making something beautiful. So we saw that. But in the context of nonprofits, unlike for-profits, you also want them to be using their money well and not spending it frivolously. And so we identified that there were kind of two different kind of aesthetic elements and the ones that clearly cost money in the context of a nonprofit, people don't like seeing that because they don't want to give money to an organization that's spending money in unnecessary ways. But I like that project because it just shows that consumers really are thinking quite deeply about these kind of extraneous um, tangential signals that they're that they're being offered. Going back to the sort of the annual reports and stuff, is it the quality of the image? Is it a particular, the way that an image looks? Is it the, what is it when you say aesthetics? How do you define the aesthetics of an annual report? So we define it differently in different projects. And this one, we really, we made it quantitative, which we looked at, what we looked at was the number of colors and images used on the front cover the first couple pages, and then the, the the whole report as a whole. And I think because in that context, it tends to be such a bland, dull baseline, the addition of any sort of color or imagery helped. I think in some contexts, that's not always the case. More is not always better. But when your baseline is so low, the baseline is truly some documents are just black text on a white page. The more color and imagery you put in, it's going to help. 
So if you were advising organizations on how to produce their financial reports, would it just be as simple as use lots of colors or would it be, what else would it be? So that's a great question. I mean, there's probably an upper bound to this. <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, garish <laughs> annual reports likely backfire. We never found that. I'd have to go back to the stimuli to see exactly how far we pushed it. I think the short answer is, it may not be intuitive to invest. I mean, presumably printing an annual report in more color, not that I guess now they're all online anyways, but investing in that imagery and, and additional color actually has a benefit. It seems like it also points to maybe the importance of hiring a designer more than any particular use three colors instead of two or use a large image instead of a small. Because if, if the goal is to project competence, that's kind of what a, a talented graphic designer does is shows you know what you're doing versus because I could slap color on something and 100% make it look worse accidentally. So I mean, it's interesting. Now I know about the world of annual reports. There are there's a couple companies out there that produce the annual reports of the world. And yes, oh, interesting. You go to them and you decide, do you want their graphic design services or not? Training your frontline team on how to create memories in your customers by evoking their emotions. Beyond Philosophy's unique and proven training methodology, Memory Maker Training. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. I've never really thought about financial reports. My immediate reaction would have been that the branding teams would have been all over them in terms of making sure that they were on brand and that the images were the ones that supported the brand and all that type of stuff. You would hope so, right? Right. As certain with usual things with life, it doesn't sound <laughs> <laughs> The other thing is companies oftentimes are split into consumer-facing and investor-facing. You could say to the team, oh, investor-facing, we don't need to run everything by our branding group is incorrect, but you could understand kind of that misguided way of thinking. And I would imagine that the investor group was saying, let's just do it as, as cheaply as we possible because we haven't got much money. Whereas actually, if they <laughs> if they knew the effect it, it would actually have on them, maybe they'd be taking a different view. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our investors are rational. They only care about the numbers anyway. Why are we wasting this money? Right. Right. Make the graph bigger, maybe. I'm interested, before we move on to some of your other research I'm interested in this idea that aesthetics can be linked to kind of self-image or self-affirmation or feeling good about yourself. As somebody with no discernible fashion sense or taste in anything, I, I find this a little bit threatening, honestly. I would like to agree with that statement. It's the first time that I've ever agreed with Ryan, I think. <laughs> with which part? That, uh, that it's threatening or that I have no taste? That you have no taste. Okay, okay, good. So just so we're clear. Just so we're clear. <laughs> Why don't you go boil some food, British guy? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Claudia. I mean, can you? How did you come to that? What, like, why? What is it? What is? I mean, just tell me more about that. Well, two things. One is there is this universal appreciation of aesthetics. So you may say, I I don't know what something fashionable is, but you know that you like to look at some things more than you like to look at other things. Yes, yeah, that is true. You're almost saying, okay, part of my identity is that I don't, I don't know about this, or maybe I don't even care about this, which is interesting because we did actually look at that. We looked at kind of variance and how much people think they care about visuals and focus on visuals and you get the effect everywhere. Oh no, I care. 
I just don't know how to do it. So that's totally different. Yeah. This is about your self-perception and the idea is I'm choosing something that I think is beautiful. Now, what you're overlying on that, which I have not studied, which is really interesting, is the situation where I'm choosing something that I think is beautiful. However, I believe the rest of the world doesn't agree with me. Oh, right. So kind of a counterculture. In that case, my research would suggest you still get the effect, but there may be something else going on there about kind of weakening your self-esteem or something because you feel like this is something that others wouldn't approve of. Is the link driven then by kind of an, an affirmation of my skill in choosing beautiful things? So like it's a sign of how smart I am in this way? Or is it like an, an association, like having it near me reflects well on me? Well, what we think it is, it's more about this idea that appreciation of aesthetics is universal and innate and unconscious. Oh, so it's not even strategic. No, it's not strategic at oh, all. Interesting. We have no idea this is going on, but it's just this appreciation really does happen. You see it in babies, you see it in animals. And so just this ability to take this thing and self-identify with it, to make it mine, to make it part of me, this thing that I innately hold in high value, then kind of affirms me and who I am. It's almost a fluency effect then where it just, this resonates with me. And so I'm drawn to it and find it more appealing. And then that makes me feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so interesting. It's interesting because as you're talking here, it's making me think of art and it's making me think of abstract art, which I know I'm a heathen, but it makes me, I look at it and thinking, I can't see what anybody see. You know, my two-year-old could have done that. And everybody's waxing lyrical about it, about how wonderful it is and the inner meaning of it. And I'm thinking, I haven't got a bloody clue what they're talking about. But clearly they are getting something out of it. And it's probably me in my naivety that's um, looking at it in the wrong way. Well, yes and no. I mean, I've always said my personal opinion is if a piece of art needs three paragraphs for you to understand what <laughs> not doing a good job because it's not speaking to you, right? If you need someone to tell you here are the three reasons this is beautiful then or why this matters or why this is moving you or producing an emotional response, then I don't think it's really working. But I do think that you can appreciate combinations of colors, et cetera, et cetera, and get some sort of emotional response without identifying it as an object or something. It also does point to the cultural specificity or previous experience of at least some aesthetics. Like I understand what you're saying about some of these general appreciations that span people. It sounds like some of it may also be open to education or, or learning and also maybe specific to the culture you were raised in or, or those kinds of things. Yeah. So if we wanted to go into full geeky detail about this, we could talk about the visual. Oh, and we do. <laughs> we could talk about the visual system and it really works on different levels. And you can think of it almost as a timeline. So your first immediate reaction is that automatic innate reaction, which is things like everyone likes symmetry. That's really related to processing, ease of processing. It's easy to understand. And then there's kind of the next level is categorization. And that has to do with prototypicality. And if it's easy to recognize what it is, again, it's fluent. I like it more. But then there's kind of this third level, which is even more learned. And this is probably, Ryan, what you're talking about when you say, I don't know fashion, what we've learned to recognize. So I always give the example for a long time, you know, stainless steel appliances 
were the newest thing. So when you saw that, you thought it was new and so beautiful. And now we're kind of going towards white appliances again. So you see white appliances and suddenly that means new and clean and nice. So that level, that's kind of the third slowest learned reaction. And that is completely cultural, can change across societies, time, everything. So Claudia, you also did some work on framing effects and how the amount of space between items in a retail setting can affect things. Can you tell us a bit about that? Certainly. So this is work I did with Julio Sevilla and we just did a very simple manipulation. So you take a bunch of products and you either put them on say a four by four space or an eight by eight space. So the amount of space between them is smaller or larger. And we did this both in person as well as on a screen. You find is there's two effects. One is very logical and everyone can understand it. And the second is kind of not as logical and actually occurs on kind of this non-conscious level. So the first one is that when people see products more spaced out, we, we believe that the products are more expensive. And this makes sense. This is kind of a learned response. If you think about going into an extremely fancy store, they have a very few products spaced apart. Whereas if you go into a discount place, everything's all together. Pile it high and sell it cheap. Right, exactly. And the idea is what is the rent they're paying per square foot given to a product? So presumably there's a higher markup on places that have more space between products. So that's this very intuitive effect. And with that one, we could turn it on and off. For example, if you told someone it was from a, a more expensive brand, then the amount of space didn't matter. Or if you told them it was from a cheap brand, the amount of space didn't matter. But then there was a second effect that we couldn't turn off. And that is that, and this is really odd, when products were more spaced apart, people see each specific product as more aesthetically pleasing. And so what's going on there is the entire arrangement looks better. And because the entire arrangement looks better, they kind of assign that aesthetic beauty to each additional product. So people, the specific products is better looking. And so that's pretty cool because when things are better looking, we like them more, we want to pay them more for them. And again, this is cross product categories. It can be tools, it can be food, it can be anything. And so what was cool is we could turn off this effect about this price-based effect, but we could never turn off the aesthetics effect. So there's kind of one conscious and one non-conscious effect. Right, interesting. And I guess the reverse is true as well then. So if you want to imply that something's cheap, then you put the items closer together. Yeah, exactly. I actually remember talking to, this is going back for my, my first book, so back in 2002, talking to like the CEO of Ford in the UK, it was at the time. And he was talking about the fact that effectively, if you think about it, the larger the cars, the more space you've got, the more luxurious they feel. So it, it sort of ties in with it, doesn't it? And I guess houses and everything else are are the same you know the larger something is the more expensive something is basically but that again that has kind of this more normative side to it which is it's more material right larger house should be more expensive you're using more material so that has value yeah no that's a good point and then there's the unconscious one which is less easy to understand This has been fascinating. When we get to this point, we normally ask a pretty basic question, which is effectively, so what? Which is, in other words, so if you were listening to this podcast, what would you 
what would you advise one of our listeners to think about based on the research you've got? What sort of practical tips would you give them? I love that. So I think I think I have two things to say. One is we're very aware that, again, that aesthetics matters when we're looking at thing, categories where it is kind of normative to think about aesthetics. Do I want a more attractive apple? Of course, that probably means we think it means that it's healthier or going to be fresh longer. But we probably aren't aware that when we're doing things like buying I don't know, power tools or something that's going to sit in the back of our closet and keep the odor away, things like that, that aesthetics are influencing our decision making. So one, by being aware of that, we can kind of, if we want, correct for that kind of bias we have and the biases that when things are better looking, we think that they're going to work better. At the same time, because I have this research that says it actually does make us feel better to buy these good looking products you should be okay spending that extra money. It's It actually does have value. And then on the kind of managerial side of things, I think it, a, a lot of people would say, oh, this podcast is about aesthetics. That doesn't apply to my work. I'm a lawyer. This doesn't apply to me. I'm a dentist. These are areas where there's no product and no one cares about aesthetics. But actually, some of my work in these areas, it matters even more. When people have nothing to judge quality by, these tangential cues matter even more. So if you're going to a lawyer, the way the office looks, the pamphlet, the website matters that much more because that's the only cue people have to evaluate the company. So yes, invest in that website, hire the designer because it's going to influence your bottom line. For me, my advice is hire a designer. That's it. Hire a designer. It is more important than we think it is. And it is usually going to be worth the money. seems like these design elements benefit us as companies from a, a number of different perspectives. So hire a designer. Good. Okay. So last question then, uh, Claudia, if people want to get hold of you, how is it best that they do that? Great. I love um, getting questions from anyone and all people. You can find me, just Google me, Claudia Townsend at Miami Herbert Business School. You can also find me on Twitter at Prof Townsend. And I look forward to hearing from your listeners. Good. Okay. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today. It's been really, really interesting stuff. I'm going to go off and look at some abstract art and see if I can understand it. Thank you so much for having me. The other thing I'm going to do, actually, Claudia, is I'm going to go to Ryan's office and retrieve that Apple box that he's got by the side of his... Um, Sacrilege. ...by using his doorstop, which I think is just horrendous. Such a description. <laughs> Good. Thanks very much, everybody, and talk to you next week. See ya. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.